0: Every little thing you think that you need, every little thing you think that you need, every little thing that's just feeding your greed, oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it.
1: Hello, simpletons. You're listening to The Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less my name is Joshua Fields Milburn. I'm here with my good friend and co-host, T.K. Coleman. Let's create a beautiful day. Oh, we will indeed. Malabama's here.
2: Hi, everybody. The
1: rest of our team is in the studio. We also have a very special guest. We're going to introduce mm-hmm. you to him in a moment. Also, Ryan Nicodemus is going to be joining us during the lightning round today. we got a bunch to talk to him about as well. Stay tuned for that. Big thanks to our Patreon subscribers. Your support keeps our podcast and YouTube channel 100% advertisement free because say it with me y'all advertisements advertisements suck suck. yes they do let's start with our callers today if you have a question or a comment for our show give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice recording to podcast at theminimalists.com let us know if you're a patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message our first question today is from perry
3: hi my name is perry from massachusetts It seems to me that part of the goal of traveling lightly is to interact with the place and the people in an authentic and unencumbered way. One thing that can prevent that is the assumptions, prejudices, and expectations we carry with us to these new places. How can we minimize those distractions in order to connect more deeply? Thanks so much. Mm.
1: Joining us in the studio right now is Light Watkins. He's the author of this new book. It's called Travel Light, Spiritual Minimalism to Live a More Fulfilled Life. I'll hold it up if you're watching the video version. Ladies and gentlemen, Light Watkins. Thank you. Happy to be here. Honored. Oh, well, so I'm fascinated by this book. I want to talk about exactly what you pack and what you do, but As we unpack this first question here, we've got a bunch of questions about travel for you. Mm -hmm. I've identified that clutter is really anything that distracts us from living fully. And it seems to me that your way of living, living out of a backpack, essentially, with about 30 things in that backpack, as you talk about in the book, is one way to eliminate a lot of these distractions. And as Perry says, expectations of travel. Can you talk about that?
4: Yeah, I, you know, I started living uh, lightly in 2018 and that was an extension of, I credit my, my meditation practice and my gratitude practice and basically all the inner work that I've been doing and teaching and advocating for, for almost 20 years. And I think what Perry's referring to is a level of presence and that's ultimately what we're all striving for, which You don't want to wait until you start traveling to be present, right? You Mm -hmm. want to start to be present in your kitchen. You want to be present while you're doing your dishes. You want to be present while you're having conversations with your family members, while you're showing up at work. And so the question is, how do I become more present in my everyday life? And that at some point requires some sort of internal reflection. And, And I would say the quickest way to presence is really just being grateful, just stopping taking a few breaths, thinking about a few things you can be grateful for in that moment. Little things, like the fact that I can walk up a flight of stairs. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, you know, I've lived in situations where the elevator wasn't working and I had to take three flights of stairs. And you can, of course, huff and puff and feel upset about that. Or you can think to yourself, wow, I'm able to walk up these stairs. There are people in the world who would give anything to be able to walk up these three flights of stairs and I'm able to do it strongly I have no pains in my joints etc. So I try to go there as much as possible and try to make it habitual so it's not this whole thing I'm not stopping you know people from living their life it's just something that I do for myself and I found that the the desirable side effect of that approach is that you just feel more present wherever you
1: are. You reminded me of a story that Sam Harris told on this podcast and he, he talked about how something traumatic could happen. You can get into a horrible accident right now and imagine the amount of money, time, resources, whatever you would pay just to get back to wherever you are right now. Even if you feel miserable or anxious or depressed or upset or overwhelmed in the moment, something else could happen that would beg, you would beg to get right (laughs) back to where I am right now and be so
5: grateful for where I am in this moment. Yeah. I mean, we felt like that with moving, right? There were so many things then that we complained about. And now that we've moved, it's, oh, wow, that aspect was a slice of heaven, right? So there's nothing like change that can help you remember those things. But, you know, when you were talking like you made me realize that letting go is kind of like trying to figure out how to make a cork float. If you ask yourself, how do I make a cork float? Like, do I need to attach a motor to it? Do I need to come up with some technology to help it out? No, No. you just let the thing be. The cork already knows how to float. You just got to leave it alone. And that's how it is with traveling lightly. We got to let ourselves be. Be who you really want to be, like what you really like, enjoy what you enjoy. And sometimes when we go to these different places, we do it for everyone other than ourselves. Oh, you're going to Rome? You absolutely have to go to that cathedral over there. Or you're going to Texas? You have to have the barbecue. No, you don't. You're free to listen to those moments that say, hey, go check out this place that's not going to look cool on Instagram. Hey, go do this thing and engage that person that's not going to make your travel sound sexy because you're here for you, not for the show. Let yourself be. Yeah.
1: Like let me connect a few things that don't seem like they connect right away. So your book is called Travel Light. Mm-hmm. And the subtitle though is spiritual minimalism to live a more fulfilled life. Mm-hmm. At first I don't I, before I started reading the book I wasn't able to connect those two dots. For our listeners maybe you could connect the dots for us. <laughs> sure. So spiritual minimalism let's define what that means uh, first of all. So
4: spiritual is something that is being um, accessed from the inside Mm -hmm. out. That's how I meant when I said spiritual. And then minimalism, doing more with less. So a way to live your life by doing more with less, but taking your cues from what I call your heart voice, which is your sort of connection to your spirit. If you choose to believe that you even have a spirit, maybe some people don't believe that. I don't know, but I know what, has happened is we've all had moments of serendipity where you had a thought about yeah. something and then you experienced something later that day mm-hmm. that reminded you of the thought. Maybe you thought about a person and you ran into something that reminded you of that person. And mm-hmm. you're thinking to yourself, hmm, I wonder if those two things are connected. And it and it it yields this this really beautiful expansive feeling because then you start thinking about those possibilities. Well if those two things are connected, then what else is connected? Yeah. And if you start looking at your life in that way, it allows you to have a the ability to let go of things from the past that seemed to be random or arbitrary and also apply that same framework to maybe that, maybe that thing that I said was bad that happened to me five years ago or two days ago is actually also leading me to this good thing that happened that that just happened five minutes ago. Or that could happen in the future. And so it's kind of a way of of embodying that thing that Steve Jobs talked about in that famous commencement speech where he said mm. you cannot connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking back. Mm. And if we bring that perception to our life and to the history of our life, we could make the argument that everything that you've experienced that has been good is tied to something that you didn't like yeah. when you went through it. Right. So who's to say that? that wasn't a navigational tool leading you in the direction of whatever you're enjoying right now.
1: That's and what, what travel lightly means. Well, let's talk about what gets in the way of that enjoyment, because I think that's the heart of Perry's question. Mm. Quite often our expectations of a place or of a situation they clutter the present moment because I want it to be a particular way. And I certainly suffer from this as a person with OCD. I'm like, I need everything to be perfectly organized. I want it to be just like that. And if it's not like that, if it's not exactly like my expectation, then what? I failed. But all of those expectations, quite often, they pull me out of actually experiencing what's going on right here, right now. Yeah. And, and so, okay, where do these expectations come from? They come from past experiences,
4: That we're sort of holding on to, hoping that something in the future is going to tie to the past. And maybe it will, maybe it won't. Most likely, it won't have anything to do with what happened in the past. In which case, again, presence is going to open us up to the possibilities of whatever moment we happen to be experiencing. But to your point about the cork. You can't get present by saying to yourself be present be present cuz if you're going around saying be happy be present be happy be present be fulfilled you're the least fulfilled the least present the least happy person in the room right it really has to become a natural extension of just who and what you truly are just like if you look like if you look at a child a child is just present they're just curious they have a sense of wonder they can play with a stick for a couple of hours right but we have been indoctrinated as adults to think that our happiness comes from having a certain type of experience right having a certain type amount of money having a certain type of relationship and so we've kind of lost that that sense of wonder and if we can regain that again from the inside out then as an extension of that we'll find ourselves becoming more present and less ex- expecting less of whatever's happening around us and being open to whatever could happen around us. And then seeing that as, okay, well, you know, this is interesting. It's interesting. And, and genuinely meaning that this is really interesting. I don't need it to be this way or that way. And instead of of looking to get something from it, which I think is really at the root of that, I want to get something from this. We can, we can switch that and say, okay, what can I give to this? Maybe it's just being myself, maybe it's just smiling, maybe it's showing appreciation or something along those lines.
5: That's one of those persistent and plausible lies that I need to be something, do something in order to enjoy that simplicity you talk about. What is it that gives that lie such power? Why is it so believable?
4: Because of, um, especially nowadays, because of social media. Mm. And our projection onto what people's experiences are based on what they've curated for us to see. I think, mm. you know, we see them doing these things and having these other experiences. And so we project what that means. And a large, largely it's because we've been indoctrinated to believe that we have to achieve our way to happiness. And so look, they're having all these achievements and all these experiences and And what's interesting is, you know, you could be having a really beautiful, you could be in a really beautiful place and having a really interesting experience, but everyone's sort of tethered to their phone and we're looking at other Mm. people and, you know, you're, you're in Cabo and you're looking at somebody in Thailand and go, wow, this is really beautiful. I wish I was in Thailand, you know, (laughs) what do you think they're doing in Thailand? They're looking at you and Cabo going, oh my God, look, <laughs> look, look, honey, look there in Cabo. This looks oh. amazing. This, and then, that you know, the backstory, it's like those Instagram versus reality posts where they show you the sort of classic shot that everybody takes. And then they pan back and then you see this big wave of tourists and it just, and, you know, and trash and, and doesn't look anything like you thought it was going to look. Everybody's kind of having that experience, you know, mm-hmm. whether you're in an exotic place or even just in your normal place, we're trying to like- figure out, okay, this is the best corner of my apartment. Let me just shoot content here, but you don't see what else is happening around. Mm. And, you know, I think the way to kind of pull back from that is again, to just keep focusing on what's happening internally in terms of your own gratitude, your own appreciation, what you can celebrate for yourself, what you can give to a situation. I have a a part in my book, Travel Light, saying give what you want to receive, and so what's the one thing that everybody usually wants to receive? And, you know, no matter who you are, no matter what your status in life is, some degree of appreciation,
0: mm-hmm.
4: you know, so give that. And, and it's, it's amazing how once you give that to someone else, it, it also benefits you. If you just compliment somebody's shoes in front of you in the line at the Starbucks or the coffee shop or whatever, it's going to make you feel better. It's going to make them feel better and it's going to make you feel better they're going to remember it for the rest of their day. You're going to remember it for the rest of your day. And if you can make a habit out of that, that's another great way to just get
1: present. There's a particular lightness to that, what you're talking about here. And everything that's happening off the screen on Instagram or on TikTok or whatever. It's really heavy. We all aspire to travel through life more lightly, Mm -hmm. to do more or be more with less. And yet, No one aspires to be weighed down, and yet we are constantly weighing ourselves down, whether it's with expectations, as Perry brings up, and distractions. We're weighing ourselves down that way. We weigh ourselves down with material possessions. We weigh ourselves down when we're literally traveling somewhere, and we need three suitcases for a four-day trip. And I'm wondering, from all of your travels and living rather nomadically, what have you learned about shedding those burdens that are weighing us down?
4: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, When I first started traveling this way in 2018, I had a carry-on bag, okay? And then after about a year, I realized I had way too much stuff. And the reason was because I was asking myself the wrong question. The question I was asking initially going out of my two-bedroom apartment and into my carry-on bag is, how much stuff can I fit inside of this carry-on bag? So I, you know, put as much as I could in there and as many varieties of clothes as I could, instead of asking the question, what do I, what am I actually wearing, right? What do I feel like I'm actually going to need? So anyways, after about a year, I decided I had too much stuff. And the reason I decided this is because when you're living this way, what people don't realize is you're literally carrying everything you possess around with you. And it's heavy. It's heavy to carry that carry-on bag around. And I was moving around like every one to two weeks. So I lightened my load to a 40 liter um, backpack from a 22 inch carry on bag. Six months later, oh my God, I still have too much stuff. And what made the difference this time was I, I went on YouTube and I learned how to hand wash my clothes. And so I was able to cut that down to just a day pack. And I'm working my way down to a tote bag.
1: <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm, and eventually, I'm a- you'll be Jack Reacher. <laughs> you <know? laughs> right. Right. Everything you own just is on your person it's on me all the time. <laughs> there's no bag. There's no passport. Even somehow, you just—it's all fine. But like, there's a part of that. There's a trusting the universe, or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call mm-hmm. it, trusting the possibilities. As opposed to, I'm going to need this. I hold on to this just in case. We often talk on this podcast how just in case are the three most dangerous words in the English language. And we often pack a bunch of things when we're traveling or we buy a bunch of things for our home or we hold on to things we don't want, but I might as well have it just in case. Well, that's the great thing about living from a backpack is that you give yourself the freedom
4: of choicelessness, right? Even if I wanted to get something, I don't have room for it. There's just no room for it. So... So I actually consider myself to be less of a of a nomad and more of a hunter-gatherer. Mm-hmm. And it really depends on where I am and what the season is. So for instance, if I go somewhere and it's really cold and I'm going to be there for a while, I'll go and buy a coat or I'll go get a coat from somewhere and yeah. then I'll wear it while I'm there. And then when I'm done with it, I'll gift it, I'll give it away, or I'll, I'll donate it to uh, one of those clothing places or, or, you know, whatever I need to do with it to shed it. And then I'll move on to the next environment and I'll see what the vibe is like there. I may, may have to get some board shorts or something if I'm in a surfing environment. So I'm very flexible in that regard. It doesn't have to be this is my, what I have, you know, and it's permanent and I'm going to just force myself to try to make my way with this. I'm, I'm open to to things. You're willing
1: mm-hmm. to pick something up, but you're also equally willing to, to let, something let it go. go.
5: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm really fascinated by this distinction between nomad and hunter-gatherer. Mm-hmm. Can you just expound on that for a minute? Well, hunter-gatherers, they hunt for what they need for that season, for that
4: area. And then when they are ready to move on, those mm-hmm. same things that they needed or that was relevant for them in that area may not be relevant for the next mm-hmm. area or for the next season that they're in. So they're happy to leave it behind and and ah. acquire what else they need in that next place. Okay. Yeah, it's like the next evolution to the whole, you know, I'm I'm living from a capsule wardrobe. Yes, I have a capsule wardrobe, but it's very fluid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you wear the same pants all the time, eventually those pants are gonna wear out. And so you may have to get a new pair of pants, but you don't know how those new pair of pants are gonna suit your day-to-day life. So there'll be some overlap. Again, if I'm in a place for a week or two weeks, I'll have maybe two pairs of pants and I'll wear both and see which one works better for my purposes. And then I'll shed the one that doesn't. And sometimes the old one ends up becoming uh, or making it to the next phase of the the trip. And the new one I have to end up giving away. So it just depends. I'm not attached to it
1: one way or the other. And that willingness to let go, whether it's of a physical item or it's of an expectation. Yeah. My trip should have gone this way. Yes. I should be able to fit this in my backpack. The airline shouldn't have lost my luggage. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, wow. But it happens. You yeah. Know? But that that's so important, that willingness to let go. Also doesn't mean that you have to let go. You have to shed it, but you're willing to when necessary. Yeah. Perry, thank you so much for your question. Our next question is from Heather.
3: Hi, my name is Heather. I'm from Connecticut. Um, First, I just want to say thank you so much for everything you guys do. I've just started following your podcast a few months ago um, and have quickly become a Patreon subscriber um, because I get so much value out of many of the messages you guys have to give. Um, but in regards to um, a question about how to pack lightly, uh, our family's going on a little road trip up to the Adirondacks in a few weeks. Um, we have two young kids, a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old, um, and we're hoping to be able to pack everything we need into one vehicle, including a kayak and a paddle board um, for our stay at a rustic cabin Um, that is pretty far away from um, stores and things like that. And we're hoping to kind of try and minimize how much we have to leave the space and um, really just enjoy being in that one location um, while we're there. Uh, With that said, uh, you know, those of us who might have kids, it's a little difficult to try and in my mind, pack lightly because there are so many outfit changes per day sometimes um, and little bumps that you might run into, you know, needing band-aids and medicine or, you know, any of those types of things that come with having kids. So while I feel as if I could pack lightly for myself, I'm wondering how to best pack lightly with little ones in tow. All right. Thank you guys so much again for everything you do.
1: So Light, I think the best place to start here is talking about a philosophical quandary. The things you think you need often clutter the life that you want to have. You illustrated that a bit earlier. Was like, if I had three suitcases and I was traveling all over the world, what a pain that would be. But even a small carry-on bag, relatively small, can get in the way as well. You think you need these things. But they're actually things that society has told you maybe you need or you saw it on a commercial or advertisement or whatever it might be. And so you don't actually need those things. You think you need them. But the life that you want is on the other side of all of the (laughs) burdens that you're holding on to. Right. And so I'm wondering for Heather here, helping her better understand what is truly essential, because there's nothing wrong with material possessions. We all own some stuff. Mm -hmm. Even Light Watkins, who's traveling with a small little backpack, he owns some stuff that enhances life. And your life could arguably be measurably worse without those things. So what are some best practices for Heather and her family? Some questions to ask as they get ready to uh, embark on a journey a bit more lightly. Yeah. So I'm a longtime
4: meditation teacher and... You know, I get the question around how do I get my kids to start meditating with me, which is kind of on the same category as how do I how do I introduce minimalism to my whole family? Because I can do it myself, but, you know, obviously they're not into it. And my answer to that question about meditation is you have to gamify it. You know, you have to mm. tell your kids... Hey, we're not, you don't say we're going to meditate because who, who the hell wants to sit around <laughs> and meditate? You have to say, you have to say, hey, um, you know, we all have, you have to create a story. We all have this muse and this muse speaks to us through silence. If we sit silent and, and we do that for a few minutes, then we're going to get a message. And then here's some paper and some color, you know, markers. And I want you to draw what your muse says to you in the silence. And so you, and then don't disturb mommy because mommy's going to be sitting here also getting a message from her muse. And so, you know, you have them sort of in that, in that story of, oh, wow, there's this, there's this really beautiful being that's giving me creative messages and I get to create something. And so I would say when it comes to minimalism and doing less, I would say, do the same thing, create a story around it. We're going to see how much we can, we can do with less Mm -hmm. and uh, and whatever, you know, I, I read this, this Instagram post about this guy who reversed the whole, his whole day with his kids. So they woke up in the morning, they put on pajamas and they watched <laughs> movies and ate popcorn in the first thing in the morning. And then they, you know, later on, they took a bath and they, and they um, had dinner. And then later on, <laughs> they went out and played and then, you know, had lunch. And then it ended with them having breakfast in their underwear, you know, at late at night and then. You know, so it was, it was, and then they took a shower. And I thought that was a really interesting way to kind of engage the kids mm-hmm. to think about things a little bit differently. And so it takes a little effort to gamify a whole trip. But I think that's one interesting way. Like, guys, we're all going to take just one bag, and whatever you put in this bag is going to be your special item for this trip. And we're just going to, and we're probably not going to have everything we need, but we're going to figure out if we can, like, if i can use something in your bag or you can use something mm. in my bag whatever you need and we'll just see what happens you know i, I don't have kids so i don't know what that day to day reality is like but i grew up with four, three brothers and so there were four of us and you know my mom didn't really play those kinds of games <laughs> 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 and uh, and you know and if the parent is stressed then that's going to also negatively impact the whole experience for everybody. So there's another thing you can do is just make sure you're in a state that's going to give more of what you want, more appreciation as opposed to taking that away because you're
1: not, things aren't going the way you want them to go. So there's, there's a few options, Heather. My wife is, uh, our daughter's 10 now, but when Ella, our daughter was about four years old, or certainly when she was one and a half, like Heather's kids, what, my wife bex would do is she would pack ella's stuff not in a separate bag but in her bag Uh as well and part of this is about setting up these boundaries that work really well because here's the truth your four-year-old and certainly your one and a half-year-old don't care what you pack they don't have an expectation that you should pack these things maybe they have a stuffed animal they want to bring with them or a blanket or there's a item that they have to have with them okay Mm We want to be respectful of that, but also it's not the end of the world. You could even show them if they leave that at home or they leave it at the hotel or at this cabin. Oh, I left my favorite stuffy. Okay. What's the lesson from that, Ethan, right? And so you're going to learn some lessons along the way. One of the lessons you're going to learn is we packed way too many things and we didn't use 80% of the stuff we packed or 50% of the stuff we packed or 20% of the stuff we packed. We packed all these just-in-case items and just-in-case never showed up. You'll also learn there'll be some things that you didn't account for. There's something you didn't pack that you wish you would have. That's okay, too, because generally you can either go without You can find an alternative that's relatively close to where you are, even if you're out in the middle of nowhere. Before we started recording, I told you when Ryan and I moved to Montana, middle of nowhere, uh, cabin, side of a mountain, one traffic light, 3,400 square miles. There was a little general store at the nearby town. So even if we had an emergency where we absolutely needed something, we had access to it, even though it was not perfect. It wasn't ideal. It's not like Amazon was showing up with same day shipping out there. And yet we had access if we absolutely needed it. But also, sometimes these little short trips, they're an exercise in going without. Mm -hmm. Understanding a lot of the things that you think you need in your everyday life. Not only do you not need it, but maybe it's getting in the way.
5: Yeah. Two brilliant things about Light's concept of gamifying things is that, number one, it neutralizes the defensiveness that people have about right and wrong. When you try to get people to stop doing something that you think is wrong, what are they going to do? They're going to get defensive about it. But when you say, let's play a game, it's not morally wrong to dribble the ball out of bounds. It's just inconsistent with a rule that we're choosing to follow while we play this game. Secondly, it's not a permanent lifestyle change to play this game. It has a finite period of time and it's going to be over and we can reflect on it and see if we want to continue. And so when you influence people by saying, let's play a game, There's no defensiveness because you're not saying my way is the right way. And there's no sense of religiosity about it because you're not saying we're gonna commit to changing forever. So you give people the freedom to experiment and explore a new idea. And then at the end, we come back and say, hey, did we learn anything? Do we want to do that again? And it's a way not only to influence people, but to help you learn about what's driving the people that you're trying to influence. So I, I thought that was brilliant. I hadn't thought of that before, but I love that concept of using games to do that, break down that defensiveness. I would also say,
4: don't wait for the trip to start playing games. Like start, mm. start <laughs> you doing that while you're at home. Yeah. And then, you know, you kind of get the kids their, menta- their mindset thinking, okay, this is going to be a game. What kind of game can we play this time? You know, cause you've already sort of worked out the kinks and, and how, which rules that they'll they're willing to follow, which ones they aren't willing to follow. And then you can, you can then use the road yeah. as just a, another way of another iteration of the game that you've already been playing at home.
1: Heather, thank you so much for your question. Another one here from Thomas.
4: Hi, this is Thomas from Germany. I like backpacking, but I find it hard to decide between comfort items like a foldable chair or a portable fan or possibly essential backup items like a second battery pack or a second gas canister and less weight. Do you have any suggestion on how to approach this problem? Thank you.
1: So Light, this is a fascinating question because he's talking about the physical weight of things, Mm -hmm. but I'm also sensing the sort of emotional weight or psychological weight of our things. Like I'd really like to travel more, but I'd also like to be hyper comfortable. Mm -hmm. And those two don't always map onto each other.
4: No, and and I think, you know, we, we all kind of want to have a certain degree of certainty in our life. And that can cause us to want to make sure we have all of the different things that can go wrong, sort it out, and then the backup plan and a backup plan for the backup plan. And again, this on the surface, there's nothing wrong with that. Like if you have, you can go out and, and search for what's the lightest weight backup charger I can find or the lightest weight backpack. And depending on how long you're going to be on the road, it all seems very technically proficient. And at the same time, there's an opportunity there to really look inside as well and to just Put a little bit more attention on that sort of inner, the inner experience and, and ask yourself, okay, well, what kind of baggage am I carrying around with me that makes me feel like I need to have all of these contingency plans and backup plans? Again, just looking at it objectively, there's nothing wrong with it, but maybe, just maybe this is a, this is a, the theory is that you may have a, a better time if there's a little bit more uncertainty, and a little bit more mystery budgeted Hmm. into the experience. And I would argue that if you look back to your past trips, it was the parts of the trip that you didn't plan that ended up being the most memorable. And the stories you were telling about your trip were from those parts of the trip more so than the things you planned
5: and double planned and had backups for. That's right. You know, decision-making isn't just about predicting what's going to happen. It's about choosing what you're going to do in spite of what's going to happen. So something that I tell myself all the time is when I invest in something, the moment I buy, the price is going to (laughs) drop. And the moment I sell it, the price is going to go up. up. I I, I tell myself ahead of time, that's what's going to happen. So now why am I investing? Well, I'm investing because there's something fundamental I believe in about this that still matters, even though the price will drop when I buy it, right? And so you got to do that with your things. If you're going to bring something with you, I think it's just safe to assume that whatever you bring, you're going to have at least one moment where you say, "Mm, I probably should have brought the other thing. And whatever you leave behind, you're going to have at least one moment where you think, ah, it really would be convenient to have that thing I left behind. So now in light of that, you accept that ahead of time. Why do you bring things? Because you're deciding that no matter what, you're going to somehow use that to create joy for yourself and the people around you. So I'm bringing these cards, not because I'm predicting that I'm not going to regret it. I'm bringing it because I'm deciding right now, come hell or high water, I'm going to use this to have a good time.
1: I think that's right. And... I think often what happens as we are trying to prepare for everything, it makes no room for that spontaneity the light was just talking about. All of those great memories that you have, most of them, or at least a good chunk of them, spawn from something you didn't expect, you didn't anticipate, you didn't plan for, you didn't even know was a possibility when you started a trip or an experience or a relationship and those are the things, not only that we remember, but we actually experience in the moment differently. And so I'm wondering, you know, practically when we're talking to Thomas, for me, the question I always ask myself with my stuff at home, but I think this applies to traveling as well. The question I ask is, what would happen if you went without? What if I went without my couch? Or what, what, what if I went without that pair of pants? What if I went without? Out a pair of eyeglasses? What if I went without my car? What if I went without my coffee cups? What if I went without coffee? What would happen? Now, this isn't a rhetorical question in the sense that you should go without these things, but what would happen if I went without? And when you're traveling, especially for a short period of time, it's a way to put that ideology into practice, right? Mm-hmm. You're able to practice that question, Let me go without for a few days and actually see what happens. You know, when I've done traveling in the past, uh, which I've done quite extensively, I
4: I intentionally would go to a foreign country. I remember one time, just as an example, I I decided to go to Budapest, Hungary, with no plan and no idea what was going to happen when I landed, didn't have a place to stay, didn't know the language, nothing. I literally just got (laughs) it one way trip, uh, ticket to Budapest, landed there at like nine o'clock in the morning. And I'm walking through the airport with my backpack. And um, this was many years ago. This is before I started intentionally traveling light. But this is what I'm saying. I didn't wait until I started traveling light to travel light. I was practicing the whole time. And, uh, and so I was walking through the airport and I heard these people talking about taking a bus into the town center. So I thought, okay, well, I'll get on this bus in the town center. Maybe there's some stuff happening in the town center. So I get out of the bus in the town center. I'm walking around. I don't really see anything that catches my eye. And there's this museum that's closed and they have these park benches in front. And I was tired because I didn't sleep that well on the flight. So I went and took a nap on the park bench for a few hours, like a homeless person, Mm -hmm. and uh, still didn't have a plan, didn't know where I was going. And then I went to some cafe to charge up my phone and there was this woman who was sitting there um, studying some medical book and I had to go to the bathroom and I left my backpack there and I I kind of uh, charaded her to to ask if she would mind watching my backpack because I didn't know if she spoke English or not. Turns out she did speak English. So I came back and she struck up a conversation and asked me where, where I was coming from. And I told her I was coming from Los Angeles, where I was living at the time. And where are you staying? I don't really have a place to stay. Oh, my roommate just left for the summer. You can stay in his extra room. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I was like, really? I was like, I can pay you. She goes, oh, no, no, don't worry. I'm not going to take your money. And you know, I didn't know what kind of di- situation it was. So then she took me there and it was a nice place um, she's some guy who's in medical school with her. And so I stayed in his room. She never even asked him for his permission. But what I realized from all of my trips is that's kind of how it goes when you're traveling, especially internationally, people help each other out, you know? And, and even if you're not, if you're traveling within the States, people help, people know what it's like to be out mm-hmm. on the road and it gives you an opportunity for connection. That's what I found. So usually I, I can tell you many stories just like that. That's just the one that just came to mind, but- when you don't have everything you need and you're kind of following that sort of heart voice that I talk about in this travel light uh, framework, you usually end up where you're supposed to be. And again, you could argue that I needed to take that nap in the park. I needed to take that bus with those people who I didn't know anything about. I was just, I was I was intentionally going on my intuition. And if you have access to your intuition, it's gonna guide you to where you, you're you needed. That's been my experience. And that's what I would offer to people like Thomas, who, you know, you, you, you want to make sure you're controlling as much as possible because you don't want to have to rely on your intuition. You don't want to have to rely on connecting with other people um, consciously, maybe in the back of your mind, that could be a nice thing that could happen. But what if you switched it? What if that was your plan? What if the plan was my intuition is going to guide me and I'm going to meet people who are going to help me along
5: the way and just see what happens? At the very least be a great story, you know, and you can't fake that. You know, if I say, you know, hey, man, life is going to work for me the way that it works for light, And then I go out there and, you know, I talk to a guy in a coffee shop. He doesn't speak English. I'm like, hey, man, can I stay at your place? He's like, get away from me, you creep. And I'm like, man, you know, life fooled me. (laughs) I read Light's book and I thought this stuff was going to work. It's about you got to have that faith in your own intuition, like you say, and you got to trust your path and trust your journey. And that is how things work. But you don't get the evidence of it beforehand. You got to put yourself out there and step out on faith.
1: What you're talking about is the difference between vulnerability and insecurity. And by making yourself vulnerable in in a situation like that, that vulnerability often leads to connectivity. Because we don't connect with someone who is a perfect deity of a human being, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, TK is absolutely perfect. And all he does is win all the time. And he's rich and famous (laughs) and and handsome. It's like, I don't have anything (laughs) to connect with him on. (laughs) (laughs) But when you make yourself vulnerable, you open up that opportunity for connection. Mm. Let's move on to some social media questions. Malabama, it looks like we got one from Instagram. Mac has a question for us.
2: I don't need to tell the world about my travels, but I do wish I had someone to share the experiences with. How do people enjoy traveling alone?
1: So you touched on this a little bit in the last question. Aloneness and loneliness aren't holding hands in the same room always. It's possible to be alone and not be lonely. It's possible to be in a room full of people, a crowd of people, and feel utterly alone, feel lonely, even though you're not alone. And so you travel alone a lot. In what ways do you prevent being lonely? Oh, man,
4: that's a really good question. You know, especially if like for me, I've been on the road pretty much constantly for the last five years. And there are moments where you want to go to a museum, but it'd be really nice to have someone go with you or you want to go to a restaurant and it'd be really nice to be able to share a meal with someone else. And, you know, a part of uh, another part of that is, is actually doing these things by yourself and just, again, being open to, OK, maybe I'm not the only one here that's by themselves. And, You know, if you sit at a bar and there's someone else sitting at the bar, that's an opportunity for a potential connection. Um, And or I've done lots of Airbnb experiences. That's usually my go to if I really don't want to do something by myself or if I want to um, get the help of an expert to see a site or to understand a place. And you can do this while you live in your actual city. I've done that before, too, Um, you know. Go on Airbnb experiences. You guys are familiar with Airbnb experiences, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, but talk about it for the audience in case. Yeah. So an Airbnb aware.
4: experience is where you have local people who have offered services to show you different sites or to help you. Uh, Visit or see a particular area, like we're going to experience the best tacos in Mexico City or we're going to go on a mezcal tour or something like that. And these are not necessarily professionals. These are just local people who really feel passionate about these certain kinds of things. We're going to do a photo shoot at whatever the landmark in your city is. And you can go, you can sign up for, you know, 30 bucks for a few hours or 50 bucks or 20 bucks or something like that. And, you know, there'll be a whole host of different things you can do. And what I've done is I've done Airbnb experiences and then I've connected with people who do Airbnb experiences, other people who are joining that same experience. And then we've branched out and done other things together as well. So, you know, with a little bit of, again, intention, putting yourself out there, you got to put yourself out there at least once. Mm-hmm. Then you can connect with other people who may be in your same shoes and you can end up exploring places together if that's if that's something that you guys feel uh
1: a connection around. TK, I I noticed this in the dating world, especially Mm -hmm. when folks complain that I can't find anyone to date, but they never go out and put themselves around people. Like if you have ever worked at a restaurant, you see everyone at the restaurant dating everyone at the restaurant, (laughs) right? Yeah. (laughs) And whenever you go to college or high school with other people, you tend to spend time with people who are close to you in proximity. Now, that's not always a good thing. You don't want to, all your relationships to just be marked by, by proximity or convenience. Yeah. But that can be a great first step toward a relationship, understanding the values of the other person, the habits or the hobbies of the other person, and being around them is, I mean, it's hmm. a key indicator that you have a chance to have a some sort of relationship, whether it's a friendship, intimate relationship,
5: whatever it might be. You have to have that proximity in order for it to work. That's right. And the paradox is we look to other people to bring us joy. And in the absence of their company, we deprive ourselves of the very thing that brings us to joy that would attract those people into our lives. So I love to run, but I don't have anyone to run with. So I'm never going to go running until I get someone to run with. I like to go to the movies. I don't have a movie watching partner, so I'm never going to go to the movies because... Even though it brings me joy, I don't have the company. But how are you ever going to find the people who love to do what you love to do if you never give yourself permission to do it without their company? Joy is like a spiritual magnet that attracts the right people into our lives. If Light and I are in the same building, he's on the third floor, I'm I'm on the second floor, and we're walking past each other, we're gonna miss each other because we're on different levels. But if I go up to that third floor, I'm on his level now. And even though we're walking this way, we're gonna bump into each other. When you do things that connect you to your joy, you get on that level where you begin to start bumping into the people that are vibrating at your frequency, man. And you stop complaining about not having friends because you're not using the absence of them as an excuse to deprive yourself of what makes you come alive.
1: Hmm. That's so good. I've noticed that, one thing that my wife and I do that always accidentally connects us with other people is whenever we play pickleball together. And yeah. this is exploding all over the world now. You can go play pickleball in any city and you'll find 10 people who want to play with you, want you to play in there. And you don't even have to try. The first time I walked by a pickleball court in Ojai, where I live, I... Just walked by, and the people are like, "Hey, come on and play." I'm like, "I don't have a racket." Like, "Oh, we have some more. You can." (laughs) I don't know how to play. That's all right. We'll show you how to play. All of a sudden, you can fumble your way into these things. Especially, we don't have an expectation. This is going to be. This needs to be perfect. This needs to be a particular way. Okay, go ahead and show me. What's the worst thing that could happen here? I embarrass myself? I'm only embarrassed if I tell myself I should be embarrassed. And people are craving connection. We all want it. Mm-hmm.
4: And so, you know, if we put ourselves out there just a little bit, we will discover that, oh wow, th- these people actually want they're looking for someone and just like how we're looking for someone. And I think it's the really it's the it's the it's the hidden secret that we're all kind of carrying around with us is that we secretly want to be have yeah. a moment of connection with someone. And if only they would extend an invitation to me, Mm -hmm. but you know, we can do the same thing. We can extend an invitation to other people too. So that's, that's got
1: a question here. This one is from uh, Jennifer on threads.
2: I have a tendency to overpack clothing because the weather can be hard to predict (laughs) what's the best way to intentionally pack clothing. If the temperatures constantly change in the place I'm traveling to.
1: Yeah. So the just-in-case items. I'll pack this jacket just in case. And then, of course, I need a coat just in case. And before we know it, we have a bunch of things that we've packed that we'll never use. For me, it used to always be swimming trunks. For whatever reason, if I'm going somewhere that may even be within 30 miles of a beach, I need five pairs of swimming trunks (laughs) just in case. And we... Can tell ourselves all kinds of stories that end up being disempowering stories. And there's even a borderline fear here, right? What if I get cold? Okay, well, then maybe you end up getting cold. Maybe you do need a coat. I remember the first time I ever came to California was in 2009. And I went to San Francisco and it was the summer, but I didn't know San Francisco can get cold in the summer. So I didn't pack a coat. But it was brutally cold. It was like in the 50s and crazy wind. And so guess what? Worst case scenario, I went out and I bought a coat. And it was okay. I donated it when I was done. And that was the end of the trip. It didn't get in the way of the trip. But you know what would have gotten in the way? If I would have brought four coats with me. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think Wim Hof has
4: helped us all re- imagine our relationship with cold. Yes. So now when it's cold outside, I'll say to myself, okay, it's kind of like I'm doing an ice bath or I'm doing a cryo <laughs> treatment. Mm-hmm. I have a buddy of mine, he spends $60 to go stand in a refrigerator for, you know, three minutes. And I'm like, you could do that outside if you live in a cold You could climate. do that in a restaurant, kid. <laughs> yeah. So if it's hot, it's like you're in a hot yoga class. If it's cold, you're in a cryo chamber. Just kind of rethink the experience for yourself. And no, but seriously... Um, I think that, you know, the the answer is to give yourself the freedom of choicelessness by taking a piece of luggage that's smaller than the one you think you need. Yeah. That way you don't even have a choice about it. You can only take so many things. Yeah. So if you really want to take fewer things, then get rid of the big piece of luggage and do a smaller
5: piece of luggage. Yeah, And commitment is the sort of thing that becomes easier after you make it, because when you're trying to decide on a commitment, you truly are entertaining all the possibilities and there's just more to get overwhelmed by. But once you dial it in and you say, this is what it's going to be, your mind adapts to that and says, okay, how can I live with just this? And you begin to generate those creative ideas, but you just don't have that incentive at the decision-making process. So I I love that idea of just decide.
1: Yesterday, I saw this video on Instagram and it was a guy, it was an ad for a guy who had a hooded sweatshirt that turns into a backpack on its own. Mm. And he was going around to like Venice beach and these other places like, Hey, so when you take off your hooded sweatshirt, like what's the best way to, to carry it? And people are like, Oh, you know, I just tie it around my waist or one guy's like, I throw it over my shoulder. And he, what he was trying to demonstrate is, well, there's a better way to do this. You can just put it in its own little bag. And I'm like, well, I don't ever wear a hooded sweatshirt, so I don't have that problem. Like, he has invented a problem that I don't really have. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a hooded sweatshirt, but recognizing there's always the other option. Sometimes the option is to go without. And, yes, I, whenever I travel, I tend to travel with some sort of coat or a jacket, depending on where I'm going. And then I'll have my regular outfit on the rest of the time. And if I need that coat or jacket, I can bring it with me. If not, I leave it in a, a room or I can put it in my bag and we're still good to go.
4: Yeah, you don't have a bald head, so that's why hood and sweatshirts don't <laughs> aren't necessary for you. But for us,
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs> uh, you have one, right, TK? <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
4: I wear my hoodie every day.
1: <laughs> I used to I used to uh, always pack a hairdryer when we were staying at Airbnbs. I imagine you two don't have that problem either. That would be a superfluous item for the two of you. Hair minimalist. Let's do one more question here from YouTube. This one is from Tom.
2: I heard JFM say he never travels without a grounding mat. Isn't that a bit unnecessary?
1: Oh, let's talk about this. So that is true. I always travel with a grounding mat that I put on the bed. I sleep grounded every night Uh, from earthing.com. Not a sponsor. We've had Clint Ober on the podcast. And earthing or grounding has really helped me with my inflammation. I have a really bad autoimmune disease and it has helped tremendously. And so is it unnecessary for me? No, I don't think so. Although I would like to make a distinction. Could I travel without it? Yeah, absolutely. And so is it non-essential? Maybe technically, but it adds value. And so there are sort of three categories that all of our stuff fits in. We have something called the minimalist Rulebook. It's 16 rules for living with less. Folks can download it for free over on our website, theminimalists.com. And one of those rules is the no junk rule. And this applies to my home. It also applies to travel. Everything I own can fit in one of three piles. It's either essential, truly needed. It's non-essential, but value adding or it's junk. The key for me is to not travel with junk. When I used to travel with a a hairdryer, that was not junk for me. It was non-essential, but it added value. Now I usually stay at hotels, so they have one, so I don't pack it. But if Light or TK traveled with a hairdryer, it's going to be junk for them. It's just simply going to get in the way. Mm -hmm. There are some things I would travel with that I'd love to travel with, but they aren't practical. I get in an ice bath every morning and I've been doing this for about a decade now mm. and um, I really enjoy doing that. I can't pack an ice bath with me and that's okay. So I go without, it's just not practical. I would also pra- pack my own food if I could, but that's not practical either because I don't, I don't eat any processed foods. So ha- keeping fresh foods on long trips doesn't work. And so I'm unable to pack those things. But what I will say is that there are like, yeah, three or seven things uh, in fact, I was looking at your book, Light, and I want to talk to you about some of these things. There are three things I always travel with. One is a grounding mat. One is uh, a sleep mask wherever I am because I can sleep during the day. Mm. I can sleep if I'm on a bus. I can sleep uh, you know, if there's sunlight just coming through the window or moonlight coming through the window or EMF somewhere. And then earplugs, just a, a basic pair of earplugs that help me sleep without interruption. I'll put a link to the ones that I use in the show notes, but light in your book, uh, on page 69, there are seven items you have, but before we get there, you also travel with a meditation Mm shawl, And I know for me, that would be a unnecessary item for a few reasons. One, I believe yours is wool. I read I'm hyper allergic to wool. And so that'd be awful, right? I'm allergic to codeine as well. It'd be like if I rub codeine all over me and I end up with rashes, that's a huge problem, right? But you have a meditation shawl that you always travel with and it is a multi-purpose item. Maybe talk a bit about that and then I wanna dive into these seven different items that you have in your travel bag.
4: Sure, so I've been a long-term meditation teacher and practitioner. I've been meditating for like over 20 years at this point and my shawl, I first started using shawls when I went to India And I I meditated in India. And for those of you who've been to India before, you know that India has lots of flies. There's lots of monkeys, lots of a lot of things. But so the meditation shawl is a way of just maintaining a temperature control. So making sure that you feel cozy because the cozier you are, usually the deeper you can go in meditation. And who doesn't want to go deeper in meditation? It's also a mosquito or fly repellent because Mm -hmm. things can't really land on you and bother you during your meditation. And then I use it also as an eye mask. So when I'm on a plane, I'll just tie it around my head. It can also serve as a pillow. So the knot that I tie behind my head becomes like a little pillow oh, wow. on the flight and or on the bus. And yeah, there's a, there, I talk about in the book, there are multiple purposes for that. And that's one of the things that I try to, that's one of my personal codes for the things that I carry is how many purposes can I use this? This thing for and then I'll carry it. So, for instance, I always travel with a um, a journal, and this is just like a little paper journal um, that I can write anything with. I can I can learn languages. I can write down names of people whose names are very hard to pronounce, and I can write out a little map for people. So, and I could flirt. You know, if I if I see someone who I find attractive, I can write a little note and with my number in it and i talk about all that in the book as well so you know it's just a way I, otherwise i uh, this would also go into a non essential category but right. it has so many purposes that um that it's it's something that i don't mind carrying around and, I've, and i and i i suggest that we all find our versions of that you don't need a meditation shawl you don't need a grounding mat you don't need a journal but you may have something that allows you to be more present and that's what the through line is on all of my all of my points in the book is that, you know, it helps you to become more present and sleeping. If you can do any little thing that helps you get better sleep, you're going to be a better version of yourself the next day.
1: And what's cool about that is it's not prescriptive in the sense that everyone should now travel with a meditation shawl and a grounding mat and earplugs and and a a sleep mask and a journal, because the truth is, and I think what you're saying here is like, it really augments your travel. Mm -hmm. But if I carried it with me and I didn't use it, then it would just weigh me down a little bit, right? And so you had seven items here in the book that I just wanted to go through a few of these. You talk about what's in my bag, my accessories. So you've got a good pin. In fact, later in the episode, Professor Sean, we're going to do a tour of his. Mm -hmm. He's a pin collector. He has... Uh, extravagant, really expensive pens. What's the most expensive one? $85,000? <laughs> it's five, 500 <laughs> Oh, my gosh.
6: 80, oh, <laughs> I just got
1: that. Well, We'll we'll do, uh, yeah, we're going to do a pen tour with him. But you see, so you travel with a pen. That makes sense, especially with the notebook. Uh, you talk about the beads that you travel with. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. So I usually wear a
4: string of mala beads. Uh-huh. And I I do these, I facilitate these workshops and trainings around the world. It's one of the ways that I make money and also help to give back. And so because I'm living from a backpack, I don't have a whole wardrobe of, you know, robes and suits and things like that. I usually just have a T-shirt and some chinos. And so if I'm just walking around the T-shirt and chinos, I'm just a guy with T-shirt and chinos. But if I put some mala beads on now, I'm a meditation teacher with T-shirt and chinos. And it just it does a really great job of accentuating whatever it is that I happen to be wearing at the time.
1: Yeah, you're signaling, but I I assume there's a, a practical aspect to that as well.
4: It's really just decorative, honestly. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
1: And what about, uh, you say so you travel with a smartwatch and a smartphone. So yes. for me, a smartwatch would totally get in my way, but I'm not now prescribing, well, that's silly. I can't believe he travels with a smartwatch. How <laughs> dare you, right? Yeah. But it sounds like you get some value from it.
4: Yeah. So I actually, I had one. I don't have it right now because it broke. Oh no. Dropped it. <laughs> and I haven't it And yet he was still the, here uh, on time. <laughs> I was still here on time. But what the smartwatch did for me was I'm a big walker and I like to get at least 10,000, 12,000 steps a day. And so the smartwatch was just a way of just seeing, okay, I've got this many steps. I've got this many more steps that I want to get throughout the day. So instead of driving to that errand, I'm going to walk that errand. Yeah. And obviously you can do this from your phone as well out your phone and that's what I've been doing, but it was just a little bit more efficient to use the smartwatch for that yeah. purpose.
1: I do something similar with the the aura ring. So exactly. I don't even think about traveling with it, but it's on my person, right? Uh smartphone you have listed in here, but then also headphones, a tablet and a backup charger. Mm-hmm. Maybe talk about a few of those things.
4: So headphones, a lot a lot of times I'll be walking around so I'm I'm spending most of my time now in Mexico City. And, um, and it's a very much a walking culture and I've been there f- off and on for a couple of years. And so I've made friends with people and acquaintances with people and it, it's not unusual to be walking around and run into someone that you have become acquainted with every, you know, 20 minutes. And so, but if you have ear earphones in, a lot of times people won't stop to talk to you. They'll go... It's a signal. Yeah. And then if you don't feel like talking to that person, I'll just keep them in my ear sometimes. If you don't feel like talking to that person, you go, yeah. (laughs) And you keep going. And if you do, you take them out and you talk. And that's just one, you know, another way. Obviously you can listen to things, podcasts and books and et cetera, through your headphones. But it's a good way of kind of editing how you're investing your time as you're out and about walking around. And because it's, it's a way to let people save face and then you get to also manage your time a little bit better because it's not really like a personal thing. Like, I don't like this person. It's just that I may not have time to stop and have this conversation
1: right now. And you might not have the attention or the resources exactly. right now. And so it's going to feel like you're blowing them off, even though that's not your intention.
5: Right. By the way, Kobe used to do that. He wrote about that in Mamba Mentality. Did he? In the locker room, he'd have his headphones on because he wanted to meditate before the game and that Kept people from talking. Exactly. To them. But is that why you listen to a lot of audiobooks so that you don't have to carry books around?
1: Yeah, I can't. I don't have any space for books. Yep. So I do audiobooks for sure. Yeah. Now, in your bag, in the book you talk about, you have about 30 items that you keep in your day pack. You have a button down shirt, a pair of pants, two pairs of shorts, three pairs of underwear, three shirts, a jacket, a hoodie, a sweatshirt. A belt, a pair of casual sneakers, another pair of shoes, a pair of sandals, toiletries, refillable water bottle, meditation shawl, meditation teaching kit, tripod, podcast microphone, rechargeable battery, tablet, journal, and the Mala beads. Mm -hmm. Now, has any of this list changed since you published the book?
4: Um, no, not really. It's all kind of the same. I, cause again, I've been traveling like that for five years. So you can kind of see, okay, what are the essentials? Uh, most of mine, I would say are essentials in the essential category, right. uh, except for the meditation shawl. But considering what I do for work, it's kind of an essential thing. Yeah. Um, and every now and again, there may be a sweatshirt that changes out or I'll, I'll acquire a new sort of windbreaker. I just got a windbreaker in fact, the other day, um, because I'm going to be on the road for about a month and a half. and although it's supposed to be warm everywhere I'm going, you just never know. And I happened to be in a, a retail store and I saw this really thin windbreaker, which I could I actually wore on the plane here, which came in perfectly um and I, and it balls up really nicely in my bag. So you know, I'll make little exceptions here and there. I don't know how long I'll keep it. It wasn't the quality wasn't like it's not like it's not exactly you know high end or anything like that. but I'm definitely open to um, getting rid of things or sometimes, like I said, the the watch broke, I haven't replaced it. I'm not sure I'm going to replace it anytime soon because I really had an affinity for that particular watch. So yeah, it just depends. But that's generally a good representation of what you'll find on me if you happen to catch me like traveling somewhere Mm -hmm. at
1: an airport. Yeah. So so you're traveling lightly with these things, but it also helps you travel lightly, emotionally, mentally, spiritually as well. You're not being burdened by material excess.
4: You know, people ask me, like, when did you start to become a minimalist? And normally they're expecting me to say which date. And five years ago I started, which was May 31st of 2018. But I credit when I started taking my meditation practice seriously as the moment I became a minimalist because it allowed me to not hold on to things so much. And again, a lot of the things that we have now, or especially if we feel like we have too much stuff, usually if we trace the steps back, there's some emotional thing that made us feel like we needed to have Mm. all of this stuff. And, um, And if we can create a more spaciousness inside, we may find that you still keep it, but it's easier to let it go, especially if it gets taken from you. You know, if someone steals it or you lose it and you find, yeah, you know, I actually am okay without it. And a lot of times that's what has to happen. We have to, we have to be um, separated from it. You know, the airline loses it or something like that. And we have to exist for five days without it. And you see, actually it's not, I didn't really need it as much as I thought I needed it. So you mentioned, you know, your kids having these items that they absolutely need. But as adults, we all kind of have this sort of childlike sense of attachment yes. to certain things. And you don't really need it.
1: I would say the opposite also with children often manifests when they are present and they're playing. I can't tell you how many times my daughter has lost her shoes. They mm-hmm. just she leaves them at a park. Or she'll or... never lose that stick or that ball or something <laughs> right. like that. And so when she's in the moment, she's not thinking about, oh, I need to go back and get those shoes or whatever it might be. It's that state of non-attachment that she's actually living in. She doesn't have to practice it as a 10-year-old. It just tends to happen regularly. You now, somewhere around puberty, we, we begin to then detach from our parents And we start to attach to these other things within culture, whether it's material possessions or relationships or ideologies or dogmas or whatever it might be. And we're essentially trading one healthy attachment to the parents to a attachment that really keeps us stuck and prevents us from going quite often where we want to go.
4: Yeah, and I think something you said earlier about belief systems is really important to examine on a regular basis. When I was living in L.A., uh, back in the early 2000s. And this is going to sound weird, so I'm just giving you a little heads up. I started experimenting with urine therapy. Have you heard of urine therapy? I've never no. heard of it. No. So urine therapy, I was really in this hippie, you know, spiritual scene. Urine therapy is where you 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 pee in a cup first thing in the morning. It has to be the first morning's pee, right? And then it's a cup like this and then you basically just drink it. And so the thinking is that... <laughs> The thing, Everyone, I, I want you to try this
5: at home. Don't try this at home. <laughs> do not try this at home. But right. we also have talked about weirder things. <laughs> the thinking is
4: that, and I'm not sure about the science because I didn't do a whole lot of research, but this is where I was at the time, right? That your urine is basically like a leftover meal from your body. And your your kidney takes out the things that your body needs and whatever your body is already filled up with it just discards the rest throughout the urine so if you drink it then it's already metabolized for your body. Now again, I don't know, I'm sure there's people out there that's you know already in their emails saying how I'm wrong and all this stuff and I I don't do it anymore. But my point was it got me thinking about things differently because you know, we all think about urine, and you would never do something like that. And, it, and honestly, it does never it never feels natural to drink your own urine. And I nope. did it, I did it for like a month. <laughs> Just to have the experience, because I was in a very exper- experimental phase of my life, but that allows you to kind of look at other things as well. Like, is this, is this what I believe it is or could this be something else? And, you know, it was, it was little experiments like that that then lead you to think, do I even need shoes right now? Do I need to wear shoes, you know, to go walk down the street? Yeah. I mean, maybe you don't. And or do I need a shirt right now? You know, and just all these things that we take for granted. Mm-hmm. You don't need to do the things that you've always done. And if you don't do them, you never know what you can discover about society, about yourself, about your capabilities, about your potential. And that's where the real minimalism, in my opinion, comes into play. It's it's you you stop holding on to things. And it usually starts with
5: your beliefs about these things. And I think about that when with your story about the shawl. Imagine if you carried that around and someone says, well, why do you have that thing? And you said, well, I, I want to be a really good spiritual person. Well, that would be a burden and just mm-hmm. be excess. But that's not why you carry it around. You carry it around because you have this story about the role that it plays that makes it so meaningful. And when it comes to belief systems, what makes our thing such a burden are these beliefs about them that says we need to have them or let them go independently of the reason why they were in our lives in the first place.
1: Yeah. That's spot on. Ladies and gentlemen, Light Watkins. Woo-hoo! You can check out his new book. It's called Travel Light. We'll put a link to this in the show notes. We'll also link to his social media and his podcast well. Talk to us about your podcast real quick. The
4: podcast is called The Light Watkins Show. And I interview people who have uh, found their purpose and they're using their platform to improve the lives of others. Mm. So what's interesting about that is Everybody's story, although they're, you know, all different, they come from different places, usually the same plot points, kind of like a hero's journey where you start off doing something because you think that's what you're supposed to do. You start questioning your beliefs. You get this internal urge to take a leap of faith, pivot away from the conventional into the unconventional, something that lights you up usually. And then everyone pushes back and then you end up finding the thing, whatever it is, that it helps you have a greater impact, lights you up inside, makes you feel the most authentic you've ever felt. And it just so happens to uh, be something that inspires other people. So the quote that I that inspired me was the Ralph Waldo Emerson quote. Our chief want is someone who inspires us to be what we know we can be. And I wanted to highlight as many of those stories as possible.
1: We'll put a link to your show in the show notes as well over at the minimalists.com slash podcast. We're going to take a quick pandiculation break, and then we'll be back with Ryan Nicodemus. We'll see you in a moment. Welcome back, y'all. Joining us on the phone right now is my good friend. Ryan Nicodemus, hello, best friend. What's up, best friend and best
7: friends? What's up, studio? Hello, Nicodemus. Oh, it's so good to hear Mal's laugh.
1: <laughs> Weird to
7: hear uh, TK's demon voice, but. Uh...
1: <laughs> Ryan, real quick, because we're getting ready to jump into the lightning round, but I wanted to give an update to the audience. I know you've had so many travails and mishaps on your journey back to. It's like the Oregon Trail. You lost a wagon wheel. <laughs> Oh
0: Somehow man, I can only really imagine. Dysentery.
1: I only had to go like 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 a
7: like a twenty percent of the Oregon Trail. I can only imagine if I had to do, I would never would have made it back in the day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so talk about being the, in a covered wagon, the, the journey going back there. Now you had to stay with your in laws for a while, who aren't in Missoula, and uh, now you're finally back in your place because you were Airbnb-ing it out. But you were telling me earlier that. When you got there, you realized like, oh, I have two houses worth of stuff right now. Our audience would be appalled. Uh, Oh, man. Tell me about that experience.
7: Yeah. So uh, when we got back to Montana, we had a a couple more weeks uh, where we had some like Airbnb guests in the place that we've had for about a year. And uh, we decided to not be jerks and cancel their stays. So we stayed with Mariah's parents, which is great. I love staying down there. They got a ton of land. It's beautiful, beautiful scenery. But yes, when we got here finally to Missoula... We had two houses worth of stuff. So we had four mattresses when we needed two. We had two sets of silverware when we needed one. We had you know, uh, 27 cups, maybe 28 cups uh, when we needed like four. So yes, it was uh, very hypocritical in the beginning. Um, We've got about half of the stuff gone that we need to get gone. Uh, We're going to do a little yard sale. But let me tell you, man, um, when I'm unpacking and when I was packing, uh, I am ruthless, man. Like I think the other day, like I came across the... Uh, a bathroom box, and it had like two things of uh, anti uh, a- a- antibiotic ointment in there. And I'm like, you know what? I'll just get rid of one of these. It was expired anyway. But I'm like, if I need it again, 2020 rule, baby. But uh, yeah, it's been going great, and
1: almost, almost so close to getting settled in. Well, I don't know if you know this, Ryan, but today is National Girlfriend Day. Uh, uh, yes. Sadly, my wife and I don't have a girlfriend, so I was to say how many girlfriends you got. We're not able to celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> so was, i'm actually calling you right now to see if you'd be willing to be my girlfriend today of course dude i'm you know i'm always your backup girlfriend you are the best oh, I need a girl. Oh. we are taking applications though the dms are open um oh my no, god ryan so it is time for
2: the lightning round the lightning
1: round <laughs> Uh, Yes, indeed. This is where (laughs) we answer your questions from TikTok. You can follow The Minimalists on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and X. They're calling it now. Also threads. We're at The Minimalist on all of those platforms. Of course, Ryan Nicodemus is at Ryan Nicodemus. During the lightning round, we each have 60 seconds to answer your questions with a short shareable, less than 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media. If you'd like, you can find those show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast. Today's question comes from Get Out.
2: I'm fine with letting go of my stuff, but should I give my kids a choice over what they do with their stuff? When do they understand what letting go really means?
1: Let's throw 60 seconds on the clock for Ryan Nicodemus. Ryan, you got something pithy for us.
7: Yeah, here we go. Other people's possessions are only your responsibility if you accept them as your responsibility. So sometimes our kids, they will have a bunch of stuff. They leave it at our house or maybe we get some stuff inherited. Uh, We get some stuff passed down to us. But the thing is, is those things thrust upon us. They're only ours if we accept them. So when are your kids going to be able to let go of stuff? I don't know. It's their stuff. Let them decide. But one thing's for sure. Their possessions do not have to be
1: your problems. Yeah, that's spot on, man. Because here's what happens we often pick up other people's problems that they didn't even try to hand us. And so that mm. is especially true with our children. I, I can tell you this with the, I'm the father of a 10 year old daughter, and I often pick up problems from her that were never a problem to her in the first place. And so when Get Out Here is talking about, hey, I'm fine with letting go of my stuff, but do I give my kids a choice? Well, of course, we can talk about boundaries. It does make sense to set up boundaries for your kids. We have to do that for our kids. But if we are constantly telling them everything that they're supposed to do, how are Mm. they possibly going to learn for themselves? Which is a really good segue into something pithy for T.K. Coleman.
5: Mm. You can't teach someone how to let things go unless you're willing to help them understand what it really means to hang on. Why do we get rid of things? We get rid of things because the cost of clinging compromises the freedom we gain from letting them go. And so when you're working with children, for instance, and you're trying to help them develop their ability to say no to things, you have to help them understand the commitments involved in saying yes to things. Mom, Dad, I want a new puppy. No shortage of such requests from children. All right. That's a fair discussion to have. But part of what it means to have an honest discussion is to talk about what kinds of responsibilities are you willing to assume? Puppies have to be walked. They have to be clean. They need time. They need attention. Are you willing to say yes to any responsibilities? All too often, parents victimize themselves by treating it as if, they're, if it's their job to say yes to whatever their children wants. The child changes their mind in two days. I'm bored with it. You're left holding the bag doing all the maintenance work, paying all the costs. And so when you deprive your children of the opportunity to take accountability for things, you are depriving them of good, healthy thinking. Responsibility is the ultimate intelligence um, enhancer. When you say, hey, I'm going to demand something of you before I say yes to this possession, you're teaching them how to think critically and creatively. That's how you show them how to let go.
7: Are you reminding parents
5: to walk their dogs? and walk their kids. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reminding parents to make their kids walk the dog sometimes.
1: I that often be amazed. I sometimes <laughs> see parents with their kids on a leash. And so I do see parents walk their kids from time to time. Let me get back to the question here. How do you help kids understand what letting go is? How do you help anyone understand what letting go is? Letting go is not something you do. Letting go is something you stop doing. You stop clinging to the excess. You stop clinging to the toxic relationships. You stop clinging to the material possessions that aren't serving you. You stop clinging to the toys that you used to play with that you don't play with anymore. And now they're just getting in the way. And Ryan, you've experienced this recently. You've had to let go of a lot of things during your move to Montana. You let go of some things here that you knew you couldn't bring forward. And now you're in your home and there are things you have to let go of there because they simply don't fit the space letting go doesn't mean I need to do anything it means I need to stop holding on to all of these things that are in the way I love what you're talking about ma'am. because
7: when I think about clinging and especially when I think about other people clinging in our lives you can't really force someone to stop clinging you can't force someone to let go but what you can do is you can support them in their journey with their stuff. And maybe that's what these parents here should do with their kids. You know, if they're clinging, fine. You can't talk them into to to, to anything other than what they already want to do.
1: So, uh, yeah, support your kids. And, and generally, when I'm dealing with Ella, it's not about, well, you should have this or you shouldn't have that. Now, true, there are some boundaries. If she brings home a canister of kerosene and a bunch of matches... No, you know what? I'm going to set up this boundary because you don't understand the dangers of holding on to something like that. Clearly, you don't understand. But if it's a stuffed animal, instead of saying you should get rid of this or if it's an old toy, you need to do this. It's about getting curious. Oh, do you still play with that? No. Huh. What would happen if you got rid of it? Well, I guess I'd have more room for the toys I actually do play with. Oh, so understanding the benefits of simplifying. Isn't that so much better than here are the rules and the laws of minimalism? That's not going to convince any kid. You're going to drag them kicking and screaming away from their toys, and then they're just going to resent you. For it. Speaking of letting go, Ryan, we had to let go of your cardboard cutout. That's all right. We have a picture of you <laughs> on the screen instead because uh, you should have seen the things I did with that cardboard cutout during National Girlfriend Day. <laughs> he was throwing darts at it, man. I don't know what. You could call them I
7: darts. A, I don't know why you put a I'm wig trying. on me. My hair's long enough. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hey, don't you kink shame me. (laughs) Ryan, we're going to check in with our Patreon live stream in a moment, our afternoon Zoom that we do. But first, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalist. Uh, We just caught you up on Ryan's travels and travails. But if you want to dive deep, he just sent out his first monthly mentoring message. You can visit RyanNicodemus.com. Ryan, I got to say this, man. I really, really enjoyed what you wrote for that first email uh, and that you sent out to all of the people who subscribed. I was so impressed, not just by the quality of the work, but by the brevity and how much time that really went into this essay that you wrote about, well, about having problems. Do you want to give a, um, a, just a brief overview of that experience where you realized something about all of the problems you were encountering on your trip back to Missoula?
7: Yeah, I mean I talk a lot about context and man, I had nothing but problems and still, you know, things are coming up, but it's okay. Because my context is uh it's a very high context. It's a very uplifting context. And uh I won't I won't give any spoiler alerts, but uh I talk about that context in this monthly mentoring message, and uh, I'll post some on social media. So, you know, there's no website to see it at, but you can certainly see a HTML version of it. You can go to my social media and click on it there. But here's what I'll say. Life always has things come up. And when things come up and when problems arise, it does not mean that life is falling apart. It only means the meaning that we give it. And this move has taught me a lot about the meaning that I give things when they start to fall apart.
1: Well, if you're interested in getting those monthly mentoring messages for free, by the way, RyanNicodemus.com. Just go over there, put in your email address. I know Ryan and I know he'll never send you spam or junk or advertisements. Just a, a nice uplifting message once a month. Amen. Ryan, I love you, brother. Thank you so much. Love you all, oh, see ya. By the mm, way, we'll, you, see you, we'll see we'll see on the next uh, Friday afternoon minimalist Zoom. Looking forward yeah. to that as well. Ryan will be joining us for our next Friday afternoon minimalist Zoom where we interact with our Patreon audience on a Zoom call face to face. Love you brother. Love you too, man. See you, patrons, see you,
5: studio. Much love, my brother. (laughs) peace
1: malabama speaking of the friday afternoon minimalist zooms you're over there in the chat collecting questions as we go through these experiences they're like live events but they're virtual they're like zoom calls with the minimalists and we do them once a month the first friday of every month patreon.com slash the minimalist or just click the link in the description and you collect some questions we're not able to get to during the face-to-face interactions people type questions in the chat do you have one of those for us now
2: i sure do here's one from mark If you understand not to worry, but you still have anxiety about things, how do you manage that feeling?
1: I think about worry, worry being a type of fear. To worry about something is to pray for something bad to happen in the Mm. future, right? I never worry about the past. Oh, I... I wonder if I'm gonna get a flat tire on my drive down here earlier this morning. I'm not worried about it because it's already happened, right? But worry is just a narrow sense of possibility. We're thinking about all the possibilities and we look at the one that stands out that we're supposed to have some sort of concern about. And there's nothing wrong with having concern over something. Concern can help us point us in the right direction. Oh, you know what? That river's full of alligators. I have enough concern that I don't wanna swim in the river of alligators. And if I am swimming in a river of alligators, then the worry is probably productive enough because it's teaching me that I want to get out of this river of alligators. But the truth is, right now, if I'm in the studio and I'm worried about alligators eating me, that doesn't do anything. It doesn't serve a purpose in my life. And TK, I know with respect to fear... The antidote to that is examining all of the other possibilities. Examining fear or worry is examining a narrow subset of all the possibilities. And we're focused on that. And it makes evolutionary sense to be focused on it because Mm -hmm. we can be harmed and it can hurt us. But also we can pivot that focus. What am I actually focused on? What are the real possibilities out here? Instead of being worried, what am I... Thoughtful about? What am I optimistic about? What am I encouraged by? What makes me feel courageous? A lot of the other possibilities that don't make me worry, they
5: make me feel something utterly different. That's right. You know, managing my feelings is analogous to managing my time. It's a well intentioned misnomer. I can't manage time. Time is going to be what it's going to be. What I can manage is what I do with the time that I have. In a similar way, it's about managing our reaction and responses to our feelings. Our feelings are not evil. They are not indications that we are bad people. And so the first aspect of that is do no harm. When you feel something like fear or anxiety or worry, don't condemn yourself. Don't look at that as evidence that you are a bad person. Feelings pass through us. They circulate around us. We feel them at different times for a lot of different reasons. Don't be your own enemy because of the feelings that you feel. The second thing is to not only do no harm, but to find the most constructive action step you can take given the feeling that you have, you know? So that doesn't mean you can have a normal day if you're feeling anxious, but what's something healthy you would feel good about doing in the future? And what's the best thing you can do? You can't do your best, but you can do the best that you can at that given moment in time. And so I think a lot of emotional management is really about saying, let me love myself and learn from myself in spite of what I feel. And let me treat this day as a special day where I just, I do what I can. It's like with writing, right? There are some days you're just not that inspired and you might have to show up and say, well, man, l- l- let me let me get a hundred sentences out there. Let me get a few thousand words out there. It's not going to be my best day, but I'm going to do what I can with what I have. Yeah. For me, I teach this to my writing students at howtorightbetter.org.
1: It's about sitting in the chair. The yep. four words that totally changed my life. Donald Ray Pollock told this to me. He's one of my favorite novelists. I had lunch with him at a Thai restaurant in Chillicothe, Ohio, and I was talking about how he stays motivated, you know, what's the word count? I was trying to get real specific technical, but practical and mechanical aspects to his writing routine. He's like, just sit in the chair. No distractions, none of this other stuff. It's about sitting in the chair. What does that really mean? It means showing up and being prepared for the possibilities. Because if I actually show up in a vulnerable way, we were talking earlier with Light Watkins about being vulnerable and how that allows us to connect to other people, but it also allows you to connect with yourself in a way that fear disconnects you from yourself. Alabama, thanks for that question from Mark. We'll do some more from our last Zoom call. We'll see y'all on the next Zoom call, first Friday of every month, patreon.com slash The Minimalist. But in the meantime, Alabama, what else you got for us?
2: Here's a minimalist insight from one of our listeners. In episode 399, you talked about the hobby clutter and how that can add up and how to know whether you actually need the materials for that hobby or not one place to check in order to be able to borrow such materials are the local libraries and local universities. Of course this is location specific but I know at my local library they have sewing kits, they have camping kits and other such hobby kits so that way you can check it out just like you would a regular library book, try it out for the week and then return it at the end Um, and that's a really great way to be able to give a trial run to a hobby to see if it's something you'd like to invest in more.
1: Welcome back, y'all, Malabama. Let's check back in with some of those questions from our last Friday afternoon minimalist Zoom.
2: I got one here from Joanna. I want to declutter, but I have a fear of being alone. My worry is that I'll get rid of all the wrong things and be left with nothing and no peace. Why can't I move past this?
1: So you're not actually afraid of being alone, you're afraid of not having peace. And I think we often we conflate different things here. I'm afraid of getting rid of some things, and that's going to make me feel alone. And then we pathologize being alone as though that's a bad thing. And guess what? What you're actually afraid of is a lack of peace. And what I'll tell you is that it is possible to have peace among a horde of unnecessary objects, it is also possible to have chaos in an empty room. In fact, I remember the first time, TK, that I went to do a float tank, you know, the sensory deprivation. I don't know if you've ever been in a float tank, but I'm sure you're familiar with what the experience is. You you basically lay in a pod, room te- or body temperature water, and it feels like you're floating in outer space. It's sensory deprivation, in the sense that there is no I can't see anything, so there's no light. There's really no sound unless I make some sounds myself. I don't feel anything because the water, it feels like an extension of my body in a way. And what I noticed in that moment of what should be tranquil, equanimity and peace, no exact opposite. Mm. All of my thoughts were turned up. When I turned the volume of everything else down around me, my thoughts were like a Metallica concert. They were out of control loud. And it took almost 50 minutes in that first session before I felt them begin. They didn't go away, but they began to turn down. And I was able to witness those thoughts in a meditative way that I began to see the peace that was already there. The peace is pre-existing. We've covered it up with our material possessions. Mm. We've covered up the peace with our excess thoughts and rumination. We've covered up our peace with our jobs and the workplace clutter. We've covered up our peace with our relationships. We've covered up peace with our technology and incessantly scrolling through all of the social media apps. The peace is already there. What are you covering it up
5: with? Part of what it means to me to love people and use things is to recognize that my things are not my friends. My friends are my friends and I never have to worry about losing my friends by letting go of my things because whatever friends I lose by letting go of my things are merely pretenders who were connected to the things rather than to me. The thing to be feared if anything at all is that I might lose friendship with myself by hanging on to things and using those things as a compensation for loneliness. So what I hear in this question is, I want to let stuff go, but I'm afraid that if I let it go, I'll be alone. No, you won't be alone. You'll be free to see your life as it really is. And if being alone is your reality, it already is your reality. But by facing it directly, you'll be able to deal with it healthfully. There's nothing wrong with being alone or being lonely. The real thing is, what are you going to do about that? What's the healthy response to it?
1: We'll be answering some more of your questions during the next Friday afternoon. Minimalist Zoom. They're called FAMs. We'll see you patrons. Anyone who subscribes to the video version of the Minimalist private podcast on Patreon, you'll have access to that monthly call, that monthly Zoom call with the Minimalists. TK, I've got some talk aboutables for you. Let's talk about it. I'm
5: embarrassed by this. Uh Uh-oh. By my little jingle? Because <laughs> no, the timing I liked was. That was cute. <laughs> I was kind of insecure about it. So thanks for the validation, Bama. What are you embarrassed about? <laughs> I'm
1: embarrassed whenever my short term actions don't align with my long term values. And I think that is really the root of embarrassment. Yes, it's possible to get embarrassed because I woke up naked in the middle of somewhere and all of a sudden, Well, maybe I value being perceived a certain way. We get embarrassed by a bunch of absurd things that aren't really embarrassing. I get the, I'm terrified of public speaking because of the humiliation aspect. I'm terrified of being buck naked in public because of the humiliation aspect. But then we get humiliated by all of these other things. What if someone doesn't like my shirt? All of a sudden, I'm embarrassed by something I wasn't embarrassed by five minutes ago Mm. because someone laughed at my haircut, Mm. right? I'm embarrassed because of what? And so I think that there are so many things that we latch onto that we're doing with our time that don't comport with the best version of ourselves. Mm. And so whenever I feel like I'm embarrassed, whenever I feel that embarrassment take me over, and I'd be interested how our audience perceives this as well. When you think about the last time you were embarrassed, what did it involve? Let me know in the comments because I find it really interesting. And it probably involves something. And TK, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Maybe there's an additional perspective I'm not seeing. But it probably involves like I'm not behaving right now, doing what I want to do right now or abstaining from what I want to abstain from right now. Because the best version of me would be doing something different. And I become embarrassed when there's an observer of that. Someone else is observing the misalignment of my actions and the person I want to
5: be. So what if I'm embarrassed because maybe somebody's laughing at me, um... You know, I'm walking down the street and I see you. Hey, Josh, what's up? And then I trip and fall. And there are some kids who see me trip and fall and they're like, ha ha ha, you complete dork. And I feel embarrassed. Break that down. How does that work into what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I I think that's spot on. So what happens is I don't want to be perceived as the type of person who would make such a clumsy gesture. I would trip and fall. You notice this in kids all the time. Mm. If you have a little kid who's like, I remember when Ella was three and she would hurt herself. She'd bang her arm on something or she'd trip and fall. And the first thing she would do is look up to see what her response should be. And so if I would say, oh, are you okay? Oh, I'm so sorry. Then she starts crying. Mm -hmm. But if I just look at her and say, "Eh," she goes, "Eh," and she moves on because she, her response is a mirror of my response there, right? And what you're saying is I value what that other person thinks in that scenario. When they saw me trip, they thought that I was lesser, a lesser human being. But the truth is like, we all trip metaphorically and literally. Hmm. And so why be embarrassed about it at all?
5: So that sensation of embarrassment is an opportunity for me to say, hey, Why does it embarrass me? It embarrasses me because I want to be respected by others as a person that's in control, as a person that's smooth and wouldn't do something so clumsy. And then you can go a little deeper. Well, what do I really want there? I want to be a person who's in control of my disposition Mm -hmm. such that even if I fall, I still feel cool. And it's unwavering even when other people laugh. Yeah,
1: Yeah. and then you value a few things and you have to start questioning, why do I value those things? Yeah. Now, two of those that you just mentioned, that I value, and to me, there are types of personality clutter for me. One is I need to be respected. Okay, well, why? What do I actually get out of that? Well, people like me more. Okay, what do I get out of that? And as you begin to interrogate it, the whole ball of yarn unravels, and you realize how absurd it is to need to be respected. Yeah. I listen to podcasts. You know Nori uh, from yep. uh, CNN. He uh, not not the news oh, network. Said, okay, no, no. Yeah, Capone and Noriega, CNN. Okay. That CNN, All not right. the news network. Uh, anyway, he uh, he was a hip hop artist who has a really popular podcast now called Drink Champs. And one of the questions they ask people every episode there's like these dualities: Would you choose respect or loyalty? And I always hearing these answers crack me up because needing either one of those becomes a prison. Yeah. If I need Malabama to be loyal to me, yeah. now all of a sudden I'm contorting myself to make her be loyal. Or let's say I do something that is just completely out of step and out of alignment with who she is as a person, expecting her to then follow me there is disingenuous. I become Now I'm dragging her because of some faux loyalty, right? And I think the same is true with respect, right? And so- needing those things, it's fine to get respect. It's fine to have someone who's loyal to you. There's no problem with that. But as soon as I need them, I've imprisoned myself. And then I start behaving differently. And no wonder we start to feel embarrassed. The other thing that I often cling to is the desire to be cool, right? Because a cool person would never trip like that. James Dean wouldn't trip.
5: No, of course James Dean tripped like that. Right, I don't know, man. <laughs> that's, that's cool, bro. I he probably would make it look cool some kind of way.
1: All right, how about this? I'm trying to think. Of,
5: Bama gets what I'm saying.
1: Who's a portrait of cool right now? Um,
5: LeBron James. He trips from time to time. Nah, uh, Denzel is smooth. Yes, everything from how he drinks a cup of coffee. Whatever, everything he does is smooth. Right. That's our James Dean, at least to me in that respect. I totally
1: agree, especially like training day era Mm -hmm. Denzel Washington, right? But now as you see him as he gets older, he's willing to make those flubs. But even because it's Denzel, those flubs are cool. Yeah. His missteps are cool. He embodies coolness in a way. So coolness doesn't have to do whether or not I tripped or what do
5: I do with that trip? Yeah and, and 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 you get the impression that his coolness doesn't come from the world crowning him as the king of cool but it comes from a place of self-acceptance there are some people who are just so sure of themselves so confident that they make you sure you know yeah, that's right yeah
1: and so it can become contagious insecurity is contagious but also that sense of certainty that self-certainty yeah. is also contagious and so that means that coolness is actually a byproduct and if you need to be cool have you ever seen the people who try to affect coolness it's like that steve buscemi meme which we'll <laughs> get danny to put up on the video version of the screen right now where it's like hey fellow kids and he's like carrying a skateboard and it's like
2: oh my stars <laughs> he's trying to be cool right so hard and we
1: call we even have a name for that we call those people tryhards but then when you see denzel washington it feels effortless. We call it effortless.
5: By the way, there's a version of this I experience in my work with high school students. Whenever someone new enters the space, there is a predictable fear about making sure they're cool. Everyone is afraid of high school students. Am I cool enough for them? Will they like me? Everyone's paranoid. Mm. And it's, it's absolutely amazing because people seem to think that 16-year-olds don't know any 60-year-olds The 16-year-olds don't have to get along every single day with older people that they don't think are cool. And so when you walk into a classroom and you start trying to act out whatever you think is young and cool, pretending like you understand things that you don't, they see right through you and they resist you because everybody is repulsed by a lack of authenticity. Everyone is repulsed by fake. But when you walk into the classroom and you're like, look, I'm 70, I'm 50, I'm 40, I have no idea what you guys are listening to. I have no idea. Look at what I'm wearing. I'm not cool, but this is what we're going to talk about today. And I'm super excited about it. Let me tell you why. They receive it because people receive authenticity. It's not that they want cool. They want authentic. And authentic is actually what looks cool, which is why everybody has people in their lives that they think are cool that are completely different from one another.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating because cool is also in the eye of the beholder. And so what you're saying is just because you don't conform to a trend, you don't walk into a school, you're not like rapping gunna lyrics because you could do that. And maybe you could even do that authentically,
5: right? I would get kicked out if I tried that.
1: (laughs) That's also true. Yeah. But a lot of people, they would see you as being hyper uncool because you're like, here's this 40 something year old guy and these two things, they're incongruous, right? Yep. But then you can go in there and you can command the room and start talking about some things that matter. All of a sudden, now you're that cool older guy, not because you're trying to conform to their lifestyle and what is trendy to them, because you've pulled them into your world. And someone could still think you're uncool. I mean, there are people who don't know who Denzel Washington is now, which yeah. is wild, right? Yeah. I was in a dentist chair the other day, and uh, this young... Uh, uh, Dental tech, she came up and she's like, do you know who you look like? And I'm like, yeah, I get it all the time. You're Christopher Walken. She's like, who?
2: What?
5: She was I like, don't... no, Denzel Washington. <laughs> 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 oh, <my
1: goodness. laughs> and I'm like, yeah, Christopher Walken. She's like, I'd have to Google him. And I'm like, mm. oh, yeah, that's true. I mean. She was probably 25 years old, 23 years old. Maybe she doesn't know who Christopher Walken is. Now, he transcends a lot of generations. He's almost 80 years old, so he's well beyond my generation. But people often say, I look like Christopher Walken. She says, no, you look like Johnny
5: Bravo. (laughs)
2: You know, I've labeled something for you and said, uh, I think I put it down, discount Johnny Bravo one time. We had stuff in the writer's room for you and I was labeling everything with just silly names for people and I used Johnny Bravo for you, for your hair.
1: Well, I'm sure Danny put uh, pictures of both Christopher Walken and Johnny Bravo up on the screen (laughs) so you can compare... Tell me uh, what you think in the comments, y'all. I got one more talk for you. It's a little meme. It's a tweet that I saw on Instagram, or maybe it was an X that I saw on Threads. I don't know. I don't know. But do you have that picture, Alabama? Oh, I have it you right have here, it. actually. We'll put it up here on the screen as well. This one is from someone named Kyle. His at handle is Kyle Plant Emoji. <laughs> That's all spelled out. <laughs> And he, I love this, TK, because this meme is funny, but it's also a perverse truth Mm. that we consumers often reduce ourselves to the logos that we're wearing. So let's talk about this, and then we'll talk about that as a conversation. I love to casually insult someone by referring to them as something they're wearing. Whatever you say, sunglasses.
2: I still see Johnny Bravo. (laughs) Whatever you say, sunglasses. (laughs)
1: it shows that i have reduced them to their fashion choice and that fashion choice is stupid implying they themselves are stupid this is humiliating you see (laughs) And now while this is a hilarious meme I i also think there's something true we often do it we volunteer to reduce ourselves to our fashion choices. Oh, I'm a little horse logo on my shirt. I'm the Gucci logo on my wallet or the Louis Vuitton logo on my purse. We reduce ourselves to the corporate logos. We've commodified our own bodies. In fact, we're going to talk about that during the uh, sucky ad segment today because athletes are forced to commodify their bodies in a way that is totally outside the scope of the the sports that they're playing. But TK, before we get into that, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how we heap logos onto ourselves in order to convey cool, but quite often
5: it just shows that we're following, we're we're trying to be unique just like everybody else. Oh yeah, this reminds me of an old roommate I used to have. He would respond to any suggestion or opinion you expressed by saying, "If you say so, my man." And you would see people get so defensive whenever he'd say that. He'd always go, if you say so, my man. And some people would be like, oh yeah, well, I do say so. I do say so. And after living with him for a while, I realized the only way to win is to just not take what you say too seriously and just laugh and smile and say what you think and let it stand. And so you'd say something, I think we should go do this. If you say so, my man. So we going to do it or what? You know, and, and and he helped purify me of my defensiveness just by joking. And, and, I, and it sort of like loosened my relationship or my attachment to different opinions and suggestions I had. And I see what this guy is doing is kind of a similar thing. If you find yourself getting offended or feeling insulted or doing anything other than laughing when someone says, if you say so, sunglasses, whatever you say, black T-shirt then what's the problem you have with your black t-shirt? You know what I mean? I mean, anything can be insulting, right? If I say, whatever you say, good looking. Is that going to make you mad? No, because you have a relationship to that. You have a story you're telling yourself about being good looking. That's okay. So it gives you an opportunity to reevaluate the story you're telling yourself about these brands you get attached to. I love it, man. It's funny. That's beautiful.
1: Now, Alabama, let's save this uh, Prince EA video for next week because I really want to dive deep into that and have a meaningful conversation because right now we want to get
2: into... Oh my gosh, do I have a sucky ad for you? No, before (laughs) that, we've got... Oh, man, I've been so excited about it. Sorry not to jump the gun. It is time for TK's Ex of the Week. (laughs) Brought to you by nobody.
1: (laughs) All right, we're going to bring Jessica in. It's uh, his current ex, and we're going (laughs) to interrogate her. TK's Ex of the Week. (laughs) No, I've got a, uh, this is actually a tweet from me, Joshua Fields Milburn, at JFM on X. I guess, are they still tweets? Uh, Technically, it still says tweet.
6: Yeah, they changed it to post for, I think, like 10 minutes and then turned it back to tweet.
1: All right. Well, this is uh, a post that I put up on X or a tweet that I put up on Twitter, depending on when you're listening to this episode. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this, TK. Coupons are not savings vouchers from a benevolent corporation. They are advertisements from companies that want to extract money from your wallet. Quite often we see a coupon in a magazine or in an email or in a mailer. Discount, act now, supplies are limited. Oh, look, I'm going to save 30%, 40%. This coupon means I'm gonna save half the money. But the truth is that you'll save 100% if you don't buy it. These corporations are not benevolent entities that are out there trying to put more money into your wallet It seems to me they're trying to do the opposite. They're trying to reach their hand into your wallet. And if they can't get $10 from you, they'll settle for five because it's 50%
5: off. But it's 100% off if you leave it on the shelf. That's right. And it's not about becoming aware of their self-interest for the sake of condemning it. As if you don't have self-interest, we all do something to make a living, and there's nothing inherently scandalous about saying, oh, but you're getting paid for what you do. Yeah, we're all getting paid for something, or we're trying to. But once you recognize that they're doing what they do out of self-interest, that allows you to think about what is in your best interest, because sometimes there are things that we don't even want, we don't even need, and then you see that for sale sign, You see that 50% off. And it's almost as like seeing 50% off makes you take 50% off of your thinking and you go, oh, it's half off. Let me spend half the amount of time thinking through if I really need it. Okay. With half of my brain, it now seems reasonable to buy this thing that I don't even want, don't even need, can't even take care of, because I'm only paying half the price. 50% off doesn't mean use half of your brain to think about the buying decision. It means that they can't sell it effectively at 100% off, so they need to drop the price to induce you to buy. If you want it, if you need it, if you're willing to buy it at 100%, well, go ahead and take advantage of the deal. But if you don't, don't buy it just because there's a discount.
1: Two things that you're bringing to mind. One is with The Minimalist, we never do sale price on any of our books, courses, anything else that we sell because we believe that it's worth What it's worth. There's not a discount. There's not a promo code that you can use to save 20% or whatever. But also, I mimic this in my own life. I don't do coupons. I don't do special rewards programs. Now, I'm not going to turn down a discount if it's available right there at the register, but it's never going to guide my
5: decision making process. But we do give it away for free. Ooh, go ahead. Sometimes we say, hey, Here is someone or some people who want access to this. They can't afford it. We've done this a lot with our live shows. We have a ticket cost and we set aside a certain amount of tickets that we say, we're going to give this away for free or whatever it may be to help people have access to it. And so when you do something like that, it's like, all right, I'm not trying to make up in volume by using a discount as a means to do it. It's just, I'm going to be real clear with myself and with you about when I'm doing business and when I'm doing charity when I'm trying to make some money and when I'm just trying to give something away to help somebody else out. Both of those have their time and place and it's about being clear with others and yourself about when you're doing which. Spot on. I want to move on to the sucky ad segment this
1: week. You can send your sucky ads. Also, your amass it or trash it, your obsolete objects and any of our other segments that pop into this private podcast. You can send them to podcast at theminimalists.com. Just send the email. Mallory will get that And she will get it on the docket for a future episode. Now, Sean, I think you sent this one over. This was, uh, we called it ad inception with the Yankees. You were both really compelled by this. Can you tell me why? Oh, my stars. Or repelled
6: by it, maybe. I feel like, I don't know, Danny is the baseball fan, but the Yankees famously don't even put names on their jerseys, I think, if I'm... Yeah, yeah Danny yeah. says, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, but but now they're putting this, uh, I don't know, the article pulled up in front of me so Mallory can say the details, but they're putting, I think it's Star Insurance.
2: Yeah, that's right. So it's it's from an article uh, from USA Today and the headline of it says, Yankees to add corporate sponsorship patch to game day uniforms. It's very short, so I'll just read it real briefly here. The New York Yankees don't allow names on the back of their jerseys, but they will allow something else besides the interlocking NY and their iconic pinstripes growing forward. The team announced a deal with Star Insurance that will put the company's logo on a uniform sleeve patch, which the team will wear for both home and away games as the Yankees' new signature part excuse me, signature, signature partner. The first appearance of the new patch came when the Yankees hosted the Kansas City Royals on July 21st to kick off their first home series of the season's second half. The sponsorship deal is expected to net the Yankees at least $20 million per year. The team's relationship with the insurance company became in, began in 2018 and will now run through the 2031 season. In addition to the uniform patches, Star Insurance will have ads on the outfield wall at Yankee Stadium and both the home and away team's bullpens. My beef with this, I'm not a baseball fan, but when Professor Sean sent this to me, I tried to open the link And about a third of the page was taken up by a pop up ad that was loading so slowly it didn't even show anything except for the blank box that's trying to load. But you have the little X in the right hand corner. So instinctively, I go over there and I click out of it. And once it's out of the way, I look over to the main screen and I'm like, where'd the article go? I'm like, oh, I'm, I must have messed something up. And I, I did this four times before I realized, oh, my stars, they will not allow you to read this six sentence article if you remove that <laughs> pop-up ad.
1: Yeah. Gross. Can I tell you why I hate this, TK? I hate it because I can't opt out of it. That's why I hate it. I'm all for, like, I listen to Dan Savage's podcast. I listen to, he has a private version. The public version is peppered full of ads. The private version, there's not a single advertisement. I have the option to pay for it. Mm -hmm. I do the same with the NBA. I pay for the NBA league pass. So there aren't commercials throughout. However, when I watch an NBA game, there's still all of the ads on the court and on their person as well. And it's going to take someone like Kyrie (laughs) to go in and like, walk in with black tape over the advertisement on his jersey and say, hey, you can't advertise on my body. Sorry, I'll take the fine. And my God, would he be, and not just him, anyone who did that would be such a champion for
5: uh, anti-consumerism. First, I have a regret because you, you began your thought by saying, you know why this makes me angry, TK? And... Five seconds too late after you started talking, I heard the voice of P. Diddy say, Tell him why you mad, son. <laughs> and, and, and I missed that opportunity. I missed it. Like, tell him why you mad, son. I missed it. But you know what? That's what um Jordan and a few people from the US Dream Team did because Reebok was the sponsor of Team USA. And they um they had to have Reebok on the logo for the uniforms. And um, and and there are a few players that protested and um they had relationship with either other brands or they didn't have a relationship with any brand, but they didn't wanna be giving free advertisement to Reebok. And uh, and so the the committee was like, nope, the, the it has to go on the uniform. And so when they won gold, people were like, what are they gonna do? What's Jordan gonna do? Is he gonna come out there with a Reebok uniform and give them the commercial? And they came up with a beautiful idea. When they walked out, they were draped in US flags, oh. And so they couldn't break the rule of taking off the uniform, but nobody could forbid them to drape themselves in the flag, and so they covered up the logo with the flags. And It was such a big historical moment where they oh. gave the the f u to this rule.
2: That's beautiful. Uh,
5: I do remember that now,
1: and I can't believe I forgot that. I would love to see something that's even more sort of in your face, like being willing to take the fines and, and everything else. But that that was great that they did that because a like, what's Reebok going to say? We hate America because that. that <laughs> right. And so like they were pretty safe there, right? But um. I just, a few things I dislike about this, and I'm not into pocket watching. I don't care how you make money, but like, you're, they're going to make $20 million a year to the Yankees. That's like nothing. That's pocket change. They could find that in the cushions in the uh, clubhouse there at Yankee Stadium. $20 million? Like, they pay one player that. Why don't they put the names
5: of the players on the back of the jerseys?
1: It's just always been this sort of iconic thing. Danny, you want to talk about that? Yeah, what it's always been known as is you play for the team that
4: is on the front of the jersey, not for the player that's on the back of the jersey. So putting the team before
5: yourself. So the team is basically saying, hey, you, the individual, we will not wear your name, but you will wear the name of this insurance company. (laughs) Wow.
1: This is so unfortunate because you can't opt out of it. You can't opt out of it as a player. You can't opt out of it as a consumer, a fan of baseball. There's no way to get around that. You can't say, well, I want the version of the, the sport without the ads on their jersey. I'm willing to pay for it. Just not an option. Yeah. And so the option we have then is do I tune out? No, you're not, you don't tune out. But it, it, it's just like a little a pebble in your shoe isn't going to ruin my life, but it's going to make the walk less enjoyable.
5: Yeah. It was a Steve Patterson who we have to get on this show to talk about a number of different things. I think he says something to the effect that... uh That he doesn't believe in capitalism because it's good. It's actually quite crappy in many different ways. He just thinks it's the best available one yet. Um, Anyway, but I'd love to get him on here to speak for himself about so many different things. But that's another topic another time.
1: And it seems like he's willing to change his mind about that if you present new evidence. He's not married to capitalism or socialism or Republican or Democrat or whatever. And he's wrestling with a lot of that stuff out loud in real time. That's yeah. what I love about his show. Mm-hmm. It's called Patterson in Pursuit. One of my favorite podcasts whenever he does episodes, which is rather infrequently. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Let's move on to the Minimalist Home Tour. This is number 49 in our series. You just received an email a couple of days ago with two photos. We're taking a bit of a detour today. This is Professor Sean. I think we have it pulled up Malabama. You can show us this picture here. We're just going to put one of the photos up here, but you're going to see both in your email. If you subscribe to the video version of the podcast, we send you these photos in advance. So you have them in your inbox already. This is, well, we're calling this Sean
5: Penn.
2: This cracked me up.
5: (laughs) That's so good. That's so good. How long did you think about that for?
2: About
1: three minutes. (laughs) They were calling it something else. Sean, now you, when I first... When you first came to work with us again here in L.A., you were very much a tech guy, and you still are a tech guy, but you're into tablets and computers and Apple products, and and you're generally on the cutting edge of technology. But recently you decided, hey, I might get some value from going analog, just a notepad and some really beautiful writing utensils. What made you decide to do that?
6: Yeah, I... um... (laughs) I, I was so excited about all the latest tablets. I love these paper e-ink tablets and Amazon released theirs. And I told you about this. I uh, the, the the Kindle scribe. I think I even effused about it on this podcast at one point. Mm-hmm. And then I was journaling in it one day and uh, I closed out the journal to go to another digital notebook and the journal just disappeared. Gone. Lost forever. Turned out it was a known issue. Had been a known issue for like six months. Oh, but was not publicly disclosed. Uh, it like I, I lost all trust in those sorts of digital tools at that time. And um, and I and I'd always had some fountain pens. The first pen in this photo, um, the yellow one, all the way on the left, um, was given to me by um, by a friend. Oh, maybe fifteen years ago. Uh, that was the the first one I ever got. And then the the one next to it um, is just a, a twenty dollar Pilot Metropolitan. By the way, if anyone wanted to start. Uh, see whether they were interested in fountain pens. That's a great one to go with.
1: And why? Are, um, why are fountain pens so different from? Why are they unique? Why are they different from the regular pen that I'm writing with right here, which is also a pilot, a pilot G2, yeah. my favorite pens. What's What's so different? Uh,
6: there's the intentionality behind them um, is what makes them different from from tech and even in some ways other pens because. Um, when they run out of ink, you have to clean them. You have to refill them. Um, you, you, you can, um, sometimes you have to tune them. You have to, you know, take out some sandpaper, polish the nib, things like that. So there's this kind of connection to them, which I really value, especially as writing tools. And then, um, for practical purposes, um, they require no pressure on the paper at all. Mm Um, so there's very little if any hand uh, hand cramping which if you're writing for hours at a time that that's important um especially for someone like me who's a lefty and I have this weird overwriter kind of hook um and so it it reduces uh hand pain significantly
1: now you've you've written eight books or published eight books probably written more than that one of them i know you wrote by hand but yeah. do you plan on doing that now with a fountain pen at some point
6: yeah i'm working on one right now oh wow uh, yeah
1: well, you can't find Sean on social media, but you can find him on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, Sean Mahalik. We'll put a link to his Amazon page. You can check out one of his mm-hmm. books as well. Tell me what your favorite pin is out of your newly formed collection.
6: All right. Let's see. That's, that's tough to choose a favorite, but there are three I want to talk about very briefly. Um, I already mentioned the the, 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 uh, the first one. So three others. One is this orange and blue one, mm-hmm. kind of in the middle. Yeah. That pin's $3. I found that in the gift shop at the Hammer Museum. Okay. Uh, just a lot of people think fountain pen and they think crazy expensive or they hear me talk about my fancy pens. They don't have to be fancy. Uh, that that pen's really fun. It writes almost like a marker, mm-hmm. but it is a fountain pen. It's refillable. Um, but these two... All the way to the right. Uh-huh. Um, the one, the second from the right is, these are both pilots. That's a pilot vanishing point. I bought that specifically for taking notes during the podcast because it is a click pen. I'm using it right now. Um, and it's a quiet click pen. So I can use it over here and take take our show notes. Uh, I don't have to cap and recap the pen. And then the other I, I recently got, uh, all, all the way on the right, is called a Pilot Custom 823. It writes like butter. Uh, Has this beautiful medium nib that is just, the only way I can describe it is juicy, especially if I put my favorite ink in it. Um, And that whole pen fills with ink. Uh, So you can write for weeks, if not months, with that thing um, before you have to refill it. And if I had to reduce my collection down to just two pens, it would be those two on the right. In fact, I've thought about it. Uh, I've thought about slowly selling or gifting these other pens and just just going with the two.
1: TK, two types of minimalism that are standing out to me here. One is sometimes we have to build up in a mass to realize like, oh, maybe I could slim down to something that is more practical for me. And we often don't realize that until we get too much. We start to discover what enough is, right? Or the other thing I'm noticing here is these things all serve, Sean, they would be complete clutter for me. And one of two things could happen here. Either I could prescribe something to him or he could prescribe it to me and say, well, here's the pins you should own. Or I could go, no, you shouldn't own any pin besides this cheap pilot pin that I have here. Mm. And he would then be depriving himself or he'd be cluttering my life with his pins. As opposed to being the third option, which is like, oh, what adds value to you may not add value to me at all and and vice versa.
5: Yeah, and... There's this second component that goes beyond the pragmatism of finding value in these things. When you listen to him talk about it, he's so intentional that looking at something as ordinary as a pen becomes a form of art. It becomes a whole philosophy of life, the way that he talks about it. And he makes me think about the words of William Blake, which I have to paraphrase because I may butcher, but he wrote of something along the lines of, to to recognize the whole universe in the palm of one's hand, to see infinity in a grain of sand. To me, that's minimalism where it's about, you can appreciate the small things, the little things so much that you see really deeply into them. And you don't need a whole bunch of stuff in order to be enthralled, in order to be amused, in order to be filled with joy, because every little thing counts. And sometimes you just can't see that until you focus on the small stuff and let go of all of this excess. And so I just love the way he philosophizes about the pen. It's not just he finds value in it, but he sees deeply into it until it becomes an art.
1: you reminded me of uh, my former partner, Colleen, whom I wrote about in Everything That Remains. There's a whole chapter in, uh, in there about our relationship, but um, her grandma passed away. And I remember when it happened and, as she was passing away, one of the things that she, a bit of insight that she gave to Colleen was, don't sweat the small things. They're all small things. And ultimately, we don't realize like even the things that seem so big, imagine something that seems so insurmountable and big to you when you were five years old or 15 years old and the hormones were raging and you're angry and... It's either nothing now or you don't remember it at all, but either way, it's such a small thing it's not even worth wasting a a
5: morsel of emotion on yeah and and, and if they're all small things, then that means they're all a big deal in their own way
1: yes, that's yeah. exactly it that that is spot on Sean, thanks for sharing this pin collection with us i uh we sent out another photo of them all uncapped as well. So you'll mm. have to check your email. So I think that's part of the art is the, the nib at the top is, is really what makes us a writing instrument.
6: Yeah, there's some really cool stuff with the colors on those nibs. One of them even has a little narwhal carved into it. If you look closely, so the nibs. Beautiful. Mm. nibs can be beautiful.
5: Also stay tuned, coming to a, a cinema near you starring Sean Penn and Denzel Washington, a new movie called The Pen Collector.
6: <laughs>
5: <laughs> I'm there. Back row, (laughs) popcorn,
1: all set. I'm going to save our more about less for next week because, TK, you let me borrow this book a few months ago, The Best Science Fiction Stories of the Year. And there's a story in here called The Power of the Sentence. Hmm. And I read it and I want to have a, a deeper conversation than time permits today. And so I think we'll save it for next week if you all want to follow along. The Power of the Sentence by David M. Locke. We'll talk about that next week. Big thanks to Light Watkins for joining us today. You can check out his podcast, and uh, obviously you can check out his book as well. It's called Travel Light. For our added value segment today, I think this is the theme for today. The song you hear in the background right now is called Laugh It Off by Post Malone from his new album, Alston. But one of the best things we can do when something is offensive or embarrassing, we can simply laugh it off. Here's his lyric in the song. You say you hate me. Ha ha ha, I laugh it off. Your mind is made and I can't change it. Haven't seen the sun in a month, but it's all sunshine. Oh, that's so good. Enjoy the song. It's called Laugh It Off by Post Malone from his new album, Austin. That's our Maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, T.K. Coleman, Malabama Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, post-production Peter, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, well, it be this. Love people and use things. Because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all.
2: We'll
0: see you next time.
5: Love and light, like, my friends.
0: We was lying down on the floor You said I should smile. I was killing your vibe. Pretend I didn't hear your voice. Maybe I was taking notes. Keep that in mind. So sunshine, I forgot how to cry It feels like pain, pain is a world away Took my cigarettes and flushed them down the drain now Okay, okay, I'm lying